Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. While you're finding your place, let me say a few words by way of introduction. Well, now, a few years ago, I had the privilege to visit the Grand Canyon with my wife and my oldest daughter, who was two at the time. We were journeying across the country, moving to Seattle, and we made the stop, but we didn't stay for very long. Essentially, we walked up to a cliff, looked over, worried about a two-year-old who we had on a leash, and we had some lunch and went our way. We saw the Grand Canyon up close, but we really, to be honest, only saw a cliff. We didn't see it in its entirety. We didn't see the whole of the canyon, is what I'm saying. Now, to do that, we would have had to explore it. We would have had to hike it. We would have had to see every nook and cranny. But there's another way to behold the canyon in its entirety, and I had the privilege to do that recently as well, as I was in a plane flying across the country, and I happened to open my window and look down, there it was. And I saw the canyon in its entirety. I saw the whole of it. And I was able to understand it in a different way. I was able to see the Colorado River as it winded through the canyon. And as it came to its end, I was able to see the flow of it all and really where it was all leading. The reason I open with this illustration is because our sermon this morning will be like that flight. Our study in Luke's gospel has raised some questions for us, questions that, we, that I'd like to answer this morning about the nature of John's baptism and the nature of our baptism as Christians. And in discussing the latter, the nature of our baptism, I want to distinguish also between the baptism that Christ performs, that necessary and effectual baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which John speaks about, and our act of being baptized, what we do when we go into the water, what we signify. This morning, the focus will be on the former. I'll say a few words about the latter, but we'll speak more about that this evening when we gather again. But here, if you found your place with me, we're going to start in Luke 3.16 as if it were our point of embarkation. And then I want you to think about the book of Acts, actually, as though it were our flight path. And we're going to fly over it, so to say. We're going to look at four or five passages in the book of Acts. We won't have time to look at every detail, but we will survey them, and I want to focus specifically on this question, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to make this argument this morning as we look at this text. The argument is simply this. Every one of you, if you are in Christ, has been baptized by Christ, with the Holy Spirit. That is, it's not some second baptism or second experience restricted to a select few, but it is something which Christ does at your conversion. You all have the Spirit dwelling within you, is the argument that I wish to make this morning, beginning in Luke 3.16 and then from the book of Acts. Well, let me read with you this morning, beginning in verse 15 of this chapter, And I'll simply read to verse 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you knowing how difficult questions like this can be. How difficult it is to wrap our minds around some things that we find in your word. So we pray, O Lord, that you would give us light and that you would give us clarity, that you would give us understanding this morning as we survey your word in the book of Acts. Father, we pray that you would assure each one of us of your presence with us, of Christ's presence with us through the Holy Spirit who is our helper, who indwells us, who causes us to bear fruit, fruit of the Spirit. Assure us of this truth, O Lord. Make us to be encouraged as we see it from your word. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, my goal this morning is to make this point clear. If you have repented of your sin and believed in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then you have been baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the essential mark of the Christian life, not the unique experience of a select few Christians. John spoke of this baptism when he distinguished between his baptism and the baptism of Christ. We read those words in Luke 3.16. He said, After me comes one. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, John understood this about his baptism. It was fundamentally a baptism of repentance. And what it was, ultimately, was a sign, a way by which people declared that they affirmed the message of John, that they embraced it, that it was true. Indeed, they were sinners in need of repentance and a way by which they signified their commitment to conform their life once again, or perhaps for the first time, in accordance with God's Word. We saw concrete examples of that last week in the crowds, in the tax collectors, in the Pharisees, where John gave them specific instructions for how they might evidence repentance in their life. But fundamentally, John's baptism was not an effective baptism. That is, he could not produce the change in his own power. There was nothing about the water of the Jordan River or any other water body. Nothing about it that made these people repentant. There was nothing about it that conformed them to the image of God. It was merely a baptism with water. And that's what John implies when he draws this contrast, when he says, I baptize you with water, but after me comes one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That one is coming whose baptism will be effective, One is coming whose baptism will be powerful in your lives. And ultimately, he is the Christ to whom you must look. That was John's message. We also need to note one other aspect of his message and his baptism, that it was preparatory. We saw this in the beginning of chapter 3 in Luke. Here where we read the words of Isaiah, which Luke quoted, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We've seen this elsewhere in Luke as well. 
As we look back to Luke 1.17, the angel Gabriel described John's future ministry in the same words about preparation. He said, and he will go before him, that is the Christ, he will go before the Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said the same thing at John's birth in chapter 1. There, in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's work and his ministry was about preparing the way. Accordingly, his baptism was a one of preparation, not of fulfillment. And this is an important distinction that we must see. We will see as we go through the book of Acts that John's baptism could not stand in the place of Christian baptism because it ultimately looked forward to Christ. But one who had received John's baptism still needed to receive Christ when he was revealed. And that was after the fullness of his revelation, when he walked through this life and he lived his perfect life, his life perfectly righteously before the Lord. And then he went to the death and he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. And then God raised him from the grave. And in seeing this and believing this and accepting this, as God's work by which He saved us from our sins, then people were able to receive Christ, the one to whom John pointed. And so we'll see that it wasn't enough that they could say, well, I was baptized into John. They had to be baptized into Christ. But John doesn't draw the distinction here between those two baptisms. We'll see it as we come to Luke 19, or excuse me, Acts 19 ultimately. John here draws the distinction between his baptism and the baptism of Christ, that is, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It may be helpful for you if I make clear my terminology, because we'll be referring to, I'll be referring to baptism, and generally I'm meaning that that rite of a uh, declaration whereby we declare our faith and go into the water. When I speak about the baptism of Christ or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about what Christ does, not the water baptism, but Christ's work of sending the Spirit to indwell us. And in the, in, in the book of Acts, we see many different terms, a lot of different language that describes this activity, what happens. It's not just the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was poured out on people, or they were filled with the Spirit, or they received the gift of the Spirit. You see, they were, the Spirit came upon them, or the Spirit fell on them. And in some cases, as with, for example, Peter and Stephen, when they are doing great acts or speaking with great wisdom, that filling is distinct. It's, a, it's part of the ongoing work of the Spirit in their lives. We need the context to determine that. But most of the time, it's referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which happens at conversion. This is the main thing that I want you to see as we survey these passages. We cannot look at every detail in the book of Acts. But what I want you to see is simply this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that accompanies conversion. It is something that comes to those 
who repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith and believe the gospel. And so, turn with me, not first to Acts, but to the very end of Luke. And here in Luke 24, we're going to see that Luke concludes with Jesus giving instructions in verse 45 to 49. He gives instructions to his disciples about what they should do after he is about to, he's about to ascend into heaven to the right hand of the Father, and he gives them instructions as to what they're to do while they wait. In verse 46, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I want to draw your attention simply to two things that we see in this text. First, the Scriptures did not just say that the Christ had to suffer and die and rise. They also said, the prophets prophesied, that the gospel had to go forth to all the nations. And Jesus tells His disciples that they will be the witnesses who take that gospel to the nations. That they will be the ones to carry this message forward. But He tells them not to go right away, but to wait. Wait until you receive the promise of my Father. And Jesus says, I am sending that promise. And he says, wait until you are clothed with power from on high. What does he mean? What does he mean by the promise of my Father and power from on high? Well, we find out in Acts chapter 1, as Luke, the author of Acts as well, revisits This event revisits these instructions, that is, that Jesus gave to his disciples. And there in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, we see this. And while staying with them, that is Jesus, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so Jesus taught his disciples, taught the apostles, that they were going to receive this promise, the promise of the Father, the power from on high. They were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What we see here is the turning of the ages, so to say. These apostles, these disciples of Jesus, had already come to faith in him. But for them, they were still, in Luke, they were still In that old age, Christ had not yet ascended to His Father. But after He had ascended to His Father, after He was at at the right hand of the Father, then it was the will of the Lord. It was the time when God ordained that He should send the Spirit. And this is what was spoken by the prophets. The prophet Joel spoke of it. In the latter days, God said, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Peter will quote that passage in Acts chapter 2 to explain what is happening. And so Jesus, before he ascends, tells them, wait. It is the turning of the ages. And that turning is characterized by the outpouring of the Spirit, by Christ upon his people. And in the course of time then, he tells them also in verse 6 and following, they ask him, 
uh, when are you going to restore the kingdom? Is it now? He tells them it's not for you to know. He directs their attention in another way, but he says this in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That verse there gives us the outline for what we are going to see this morning. If you think again back to our illustration, our, our introductory image, that we are on a flight and we are passing over this great distance, we are going to fly over Jerusalem and Judea, over Samaria, and to the ends of the earth as we see at each stage of the progress of the gospel, Luke highlights the outpouring of the Spirit by Christ. He highlights the baptism of the Holy Spirit to show us what it, what it entails. And that, that, that is to show us that this is the peculiar mark of the Christian life. That all who come to Christ by faith in repentance receive this outpouring of the Spirit. The very first passage then is in Acts chapter 2. I won't read it all. I'll summarize it and then I'll read and focus on what Peter says to the crowds after he has finished his, his sermon there in Acts chapter 2. But what we see at the beginning of Acts 2 is this first outpouring of the Spirit where Christ sends His Spirit upon the apostles and the evidence that they show by which it's known is twofold. First, they speak in tongues, that is, in known languages. Luke makes this clear. The people hear them speaking in their own languages. And they see divided tongues that, that look like fire on their heads, sitting on them. And then the second sign is that Peter stands up and interprets the first. He explains it. Because some of the people think they're just drunk. They're just inebriated. And that's why they're acting so strange and babbling and saying these strange things. But Peter stands up and he interprets what's happening. And he says, this is in fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, in verse 17, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And he goes on to explain then what is happening, that this came with the turning of the ages. So he tells the people about what Christ did. And he confronts them. He says that you crucified him. But this was according to the definite plan and will of God. And God raised him up. And by this, Peter means to prove to them one thing, that he is Lord and Christ. In other words, it's without question that he died and was raised. Peter says, we are witnesses to this. What he wants to show them is that this is what the Christ had to do. He had to suffer, die, and rise. He is Lord, and He is Christ. And in that realization, they say the same thing we saw in Luke 3. Those same words that we heard from the tax collectors and the soldiers last week. What shall we do? They were ready to repent. And so in verse 37 we read, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter called them to repent, and he called them to be baptized, but we need to understand 
that what he was doing was calling them to place their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And the way in which they declared that faith was by being baptized. You see, when I, if I were to say, I said my vows in March of 2011. In March of 2011. You know that I did more than just say my vows. You know that I was married. You know that there's a whole a number of things that come with a marriage. There's a ceremony and a worship service and a minister pronounces, pronounces you husband and wife and you're married before witnesses and you go on to live a life together as husband and wife. But you see what I said is, I said my vows. Stands in for the whole. When Peter and others spoke of being baptized, the part stands for the whole. You see, Luke presents the act of being baptized as evidence of faith. And he presents faith and repentance as inseparable parts of conversion. And all of these things lead to forgiveness of sins, and all of these things are accompanied by the outpouring of the Spirit. It's not that, that Peter is saying, well, if you get baptized in the water, then you'll receive the Spirit. That's the key. That's the key trick that you've got to perform. That's not what Luke is saying. That's not what Peter is saying. And you can see that if you look at 1 Peter 3.21, the way that Peter speaks about baptism. There he says, Baptism doesn't save you as the washing of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. It is a declaration, in other words, of faith in Christ and His work and His death and resurrection by which He unites us with, with, with Himself in that death and resurrection. We'll talk more about that this evening. But understand that what Peter is saying when he calls them to be baptized is he's calling them to repent and he's calling them to believe. And there was no such thing in the early church of a Christian who had not been baptized. That's what they did. They believed and they went into the water and they were baptized. And so the part stands for the whole. But here then we see that the outpouring of the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is something that Peter says is for you. It's not for a select few of you. It's not that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says. So repent and believe. That's the first outpouring of the Spirit. It's the first stage in the progress of the gospel because here what we've seen is the gospel coming to Jerusalem and the men of Judea. But we flip ahead then to Acts chapter 8. To Acts chapter 8. And here we see the gospel come to Samaria. Again, it will be my pattern to focus our attention on a few things. And so I'll summarize the passage. And then I'll read a few short phrases and I'll explain. What happens here is that persecution has broken out. And it's caused the Christians in Jerusalem to scatter throughout the world, to, to go to, to the surrounding areas. And as they go, they preach the gospel as they go. And Philip, not the Philip who was an apostle, that'll be important, but Philip, one of the early members of the church, he goes to Samaria and he proclaims the gospel, and they believe. They receive the gospel, they believe in Christ, they are baptized but they don't receive the Spirit. Luke will draw our attention to this fact 
this unusual fact in verse 14 and following. We read there that now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, you see their faith, they received the word of God. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. All who received the word of God were baptized and added to their number. They received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now why, we're going to answer this question in a moment, we wonder why is it that in this case the baptism of the Holy Spirit was delayed. They came to faith, they expressed that faith in baptism, but they did not immediately receive the Spirit. Is it because the Spirit is received only after someone lays his hands on a person? As we read on, what we can see is that that's not the case. For there's a man named Simon who was baptized, who had joined with their number, but we find that he does not have a heart of repentance and faith. In verse 18, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me, the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. We can't look at every detail if you'll stay with us for another year. Lord willing, it's my intention after we finish the Gospel of Luke to go through the book of Acts in more detail. But what I want you to see is that Simon did not receive the Spirit, though he was baptized, because he did not have a heart of repentance and faith. It was not at the end of the day the laying on of hands that was the key to making these people to receive the Spirit. It was necessary to be converted. But why then the delay? Why did the, gospel, why did the Spirit come to the Samaritans? Because the apostles laid their hands on them. We have to think in terms of the progress of the gospel. It will be helpful, that is, for us to remember that this is a major stage in the progress of the gospel. The apostles were to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you see what would have been likely to happen between the Samaritan Christians and the Jewish Christians is that they would continue going on as they had always been going. You see, they had separated centuries before in a northern kingdom and in a southern kingdom. And they had different forms of worship. The Samaritans worshipped in different places and according to different texts of scriptures, they didn't accept all of the scripture that the Jews accepted. And they all disagreed as to who was right before God. And the temptation after they had come to Christ would be, continuing, would be to continue on that way. For the Samaritans to have their church and the Jews to have their church and everyone to be separate. And we're going to see that that temptation becomes even stronger in the next text in Acts chapter 10. And so it seems that the best answer 
The best explanation for this is that God in this particular case, in a unique instance, willed that the giving of the Spirit would be delayed until the apostles came from Jerusalem and laid their hands on the Samaritans so that they would know that this is not one, two people that God is creating, but He is creating one people, one church, united by one Spirit. So in this unique case, there's a delay. But we ought not to think that this is the normal pattern for Christians. But it shows definitively the progress of the gospel from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria. And as we're about to see in Acts chapter 10, the progress of the gospel to the Gentiles. Here again, let me summarize then, in Acts chapter 10, there's a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a God-fearer. That means he worshipped the God of Israel, but he had not become an Israelite. He had not become a proselyte. He was a centurion. And he was praying. And an angel told him to send messengers to, to get Peter and to bring Peter and that Peter would have a message for him. And while the messengers were coming, God gave Peter a vision by which he showed him that the Gentiles were no longer to be separated from the people of God that they were no longer to be considered unclean, but they were being brought in. And so after this vision made the point clear and these men stood before Peter, he recognized that he was to go to them, that though it was considered unlawful in the old age for him to gather with, with non-Jews, he was to go to them and he was to share the gospel with them. And in verse 44, we hear these words. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. It's important to note in this text that the picture is a bit reversed from what we saw in Samaria. They were baptized and there was a delay. But here, they receive the Spirit before they are baptized. And Peter and those who are with them are amazed. They, they see them doing the things that they saw at Pentecost, the signs that they saw. And they know that indeed, Christ has poured out the Spirit on these Gentiles. They had received the Word with repentance and faith and they had believed and at their conversion, they received the Spirit. It wasn't because they went into the water. It was because Christ poured out the Spirit on them. And Peter saw this and observed it, and he recognized, I must baptize them. I have no right to say, but you're a Gentile, and you have no part among us, for they too have received the Holy Spirit. And look at in chapter 11 then, in verse 13 in chapter 11, how Peter describes this event. How he, he's really trying to give an explanation to the, to the men back in Jerusalem. Why did you go to these Gentiles? And he says, we read, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in the house and say, he's talking about Cornelius, he had told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon Bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on, at, just as on us at the beginning. 
And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit fell on them. And Peter says, this is what John spoke about. It's what Jesus spoke about. They have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The Spirit was given to the men of Jerusalem and Judea. The Spirit was given to the Samaritans. The Spirit was given to Cornelius and these Gentiles in connection with their conversion. And even though there was a delay with the Samaritans, we can see that each of these instances, any kind of difference or any kind of delay, helps us to see and know that indeed God was fulfilling His purposes, that the gospel should go forth from Jerusalem to Judea and to the Gentiles, and as we're about to see, even to the ends of the earth. So we'll come to our last passage in Acts, in, in chapter 19, as we fly over, if you will. We'll open our window one last time, and we'll read these words. And it happened in verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying there were about 12 men in all. And here we see these men who Luke describes as being in the inland country. They're living under the proverbial rock, so to say. Seems they've not heard a lot. They've, they knew about John. They received his baptism, but they've not even heard. They've not even heard about the Holy Spirit. They've not heard about Christ either. And so... These people, though, they are called disciples. We ought to understand that they are not yet Christians. Though in the book of Acts, the word disciples is always elsewhere used of reference to Christians. There it's the disciples, but here we see some disciples. And if we take all of Luke's writing, the book of Luke and the book of Acts together, we see that in at least three places in Luke, Luke refers to the disciples of John in distinction from the disciples of Jesus. Many of those men would become disciples of Christ, but there was this overlap, and this is sort of the last, the last example of that overlap, where people had not yet heard the message of Christ. They were living in a way that was consistent with John's message, a life of repentance, but they needed one final thing, one final thing to become Christians, and to have that peculiar mark of the Christian to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, they needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just a message of anticipation and preparation, but a message of fulfillment. Not that He is coming, but that He has come. 
And he has died. And he has risen. Paul proclaimed that to them. And they believed and they demonstrated that faith by being baptized, not by saying, can John's baptism count? Isn't that good enough? But by saying, we want to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were. And they received the Spirit. They were converted. And so Luke, throughout his gospel, excuse, throughout this book of Acts, through this sequel to his gospel, shows us that the gift of the Holy Spirit is always given with conversion. And in the one example, the unique example where it's delayed, it's still given to converted men and not to unconverted men. It's still given to men and women who have embraced Christ in repentance and faith. And it's always given to those who have embraced Christ in repentance and faith. The Spirit is not withheld. Christ does not withhold His Spirit from some of us and give His Spirit to others of us. But if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit. The Spirit indwells you. The Spirit has come upon you. Christ has baptized you with the Holy Spirit. We must say a few words about this to apply it in our lives. We must say some things about tongues and about timing. You see, you might say, I don't really feel like I have the Spirit indwelling me. And you don't. It's not something that you feel. It's not something that you touch. You don't need to feel it. You know it because God says it's so. The Spirit is in you if you are in Christ. You need, you know it. Believe it. He has baptized you with the Holy Spirit if you have repented of your sins and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. And what about the tongues? Wouldn't it be helpful to all of us if we could see some visible objective sign to know who has it and who doesn't? But we don't see tongues today. That is, we don't hear people speaking in all sorts of different languages. That is, hear someone speaking in our own native tongue when they are not. But those proofs were necessary in their time. We saw that in connection with the progress of the gospel. It was necessary that it be seen that the gospel had come to the Samaritans, especially by people who would not have been predisposed to embrace Samaritans, who would have been predisposed to keep them at arm's length, and by Samaritans who would have been predisposed to do the same to the Jews. And in the same way, it was necessary that it be seen that the we saw that especially with what Peter said and what the apostles said in response. It was necessary that they see the proof that the Spirit had been given to the Gentiles, that the gospel had gone forth to the Gentiles. And in Ephesus, it was necessary to see that this comes not apart from the preaching of Christ crucified and risen, but through the preaching of Christ crucified and risen. It was needful that we see that. And so God in His wisdom gave objective proofs so that we might know that the Spirit had been poured out. But we do have proofs in our lives. Not things that we would look at and on their face see as miraculous, but no less miraculous. The proof of the work of the Spirit in your life is this. You repented of your sin. 
you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this you could not do on your own power except by the Spirit working in you. And the proofs continue. As I hear some of your testimonies of repentance and turning and growth in Christ, I am so encouraged because what I hear is this. The Spirit is working in our midst. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. Think about that phrase from Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, it is not the fruit of you. It is not the fruit of me. It is not the fruit of your favorite preacher or the book that you read. It is the fruit that the Spirit produces in your life. And as I see love in our midst, as I see gentleness, as I see faithfulness, I see that the Spirit is working in your life. We have objective proofs in those things. We know that the Spirit is at work in us because God says it so, because He gives us proofs that are much more important than miraculous signs and wonders, or that are no less miraculous than what we see in the book of Acts. But that's of tongues. What of timing? I've made the case that the Spirit is given at our conversion. I want you to understand something. I am not addressing the issue of the order of salvation this morning. I am not addressing the question of what comes first. Does the Spirit indwell us? Or do we believe and receive the Spirit? Though we believe, we proclaim that regeneration, the Spirit's work of producing new birth in us, uh, precedes our faith. That we can't believe unless... We are like that blind man who says, I once was blind, but now I see because God has made me to see, and now I believe. That's a necessary work, but that's not the question that Luke addresses. As he presents this picture, he presents all of these things together, that there's repentance. It's not that repentance leads to the gift of the Holy Spirit, but you could also get there by faith. It's repentance and it's faith. And these things lead to the forgiveness of sins, but not because they cause us to be forgiven, as if we earned that forgiveness by them, because God is pleased to forgive us by His great grace as a free gift alone. And yet Luke takes all of these, as it were, as if he's preparing a meal for us, and he takes all the food and he doesn't separate it. He puts it all on the plate together in a mash. It's repentance and it's faith in Christ. It's receiving the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this leads to forgiveness. And this is accompanied by the outpouring of the Spirit. And all of this comes together, not at some second stage conversion, but for those who have believed. But then there's that question of timing. What about baptism? Because what we see in our own life is quite different from what we see in the book of Acts. You see one commentator commenting on a passage from Romans chapter 6 this week I read. Address the question, is Paul speaking about our Christian baptism in water or the baptism of the Holy Spirit? He suggested that if we asked that question to Paul, he would look at us with a raised eyebrow and say, what do you mean? And then when we explained that, well, some people are Christians, but they haven't been baptized, he'd probably, oh, I understand, and then say, why not? 
In the early church, they knew nothing of a Christian who did not come to the waters of baptism. But of course, for all different reasons, we often delay baptism. Sometimes it's to, to see the evidence of a changed life. Sometimes it's because the person's a child. Sometimes it's because we're afraid to make a commitment, or sometimes it's just a logistical situation that we face, not having water readily available at hand. You should understand this. You don't need to go into the water. The water doesn't save you. You don't need to go into the water to be saved. The thief on the cross was saved of his sins. He never went into the waters of baptism. He was saved by repentance and faith. But I also want to say this. You need to be baptized if you're not. For our Lord commands us, be baptized. And it's the way that we declare our faith before the world. As they witness, bear witness to the reality of that faith in our life. They hear our testimony. As we receive that ordinance of baptism, go into the water. So don't think that somehow the water is the means by which you receive the Spirit. The means by which you receive the Spirit is this and this alone. Christ pours out the Spirit upon you. He alone can baptize with the Spirit. And He baptizes all who repent and believe. But if that is true of you, then come to the water. These early Christians are such a wonderful example to us. They did not hesitate especially in Ephesus. Look at what they did. They eagerly were baptized. Or the Ethiopian eunuch said to Philip, Look, here's water. What will prevent me from being baptized? They wanted to declare to all who could see that they were in Christ and Christ was in them through faith in Him. So they came to the water to receive baptism. So if it describes you, or describe someone that you know, encourage them. Come to this. Let me close with this. I want to close with a note of joy. I want to close with a call to rejoice. I said, I gave you one just a moment ago. I said, you will not feel full of the Spirit as if it's, some, as if it's like feeling full of food. But we will see it, and we do. And rejoice in seeing it. We see it in one another. As, as I see you grow in the grace of our Lord, as I see, hear your testimonies of faith in Christ, I am encouraged. This evening we're going to gather, and we're going to celebrate the baptism of one who is among us. We ought to rejoice. Think of what Luke wrote, what Jesus said in his parables in Luke 15. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, one sinner who comes home, than over 99 who had no need of repentance. There is joy in heaven, and there should be joy in our hearts too. We ought to rejoice to know this and praise our Lord that He is working in our midst and pray that God will do it again and again. Remember this. The kingdom of God is like what? It's like a seed. Like the smallest of seeds. And we are but a little outpost of the kingdom of heaven. Here, at the ends of the earth, 
from the perspective of Jerusalem. And yet God begins with little things and He produces something extraordinary. He produces from that little seed a plant in which all the birds of the air nest and take their shade and take their rest. And from little places and humble places He produces great works whereby we know that this indeed is not our work, it is a work of God, and in that we ought to rejoice. And even as we see the very beginnings of it, every time one lost sinner comes home, let us rejoice. The Spirit is at work among us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you, and we rejoice in your work. It's not a work that we can do. We are merely as a man who goes out and scatters seed. But you, O oh Lord, are the one who causes the seed to sprout and to grow, to become not just a plant but a fruitful forest. This is your work, O oh Lord, and your work alone, and we only ask that you would give us the privilege to see it in our midst. And we thank you that you have allowed us to see it already. We pray that we would continue to see it here in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our region, and in our world. We thank you, O Lord, that you have graciously, willingly incorporated us in that work. May we be faithful sowers of seed in all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.